welcome to One of Two Hundred, the New Zealand International Politics Podcast. It's me and Bronco on the decks uh, this evening. Are we DJing? Tonight? I hate that, you know. You didn't, yeah. you didn't explain that to me when we agreed. Uh, to well, show. yeah, it's the DJ special. Um, <laughs> every, speak- as as long time listeners know, every year we do a DJ special uh, mm-hmm. where we just play some of our favorite songs. Uh, yeah. You and I, you know, do some do some. Uh, we get on the decks, as you say. We spin some records. We, uh, you know, we 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 screw around with things. It's yeah. it's always fun. It's a tradition. Only um, left wing <laughs> artists uh, are allowed. But we're just playing the Clash. It's it's just the Clash. <laughs> before <laughs> that, though, before that, uh, we've got a range of things to talk about. Um, some New Zealand international news. But I wanted to start with talking about the. The latest horrible news in New Zealand's housing crisis, which is that housing is now New Zealand's biggest industry, whatever the fuck that means. Yeah, I think it's it's like economic contribution is is the largest out of anything else. Yeah, yeah. according to, I think I think it was like from a property investment magazine that that put this out. So you know they they do have a kind of incentive to emphasize or, or even perhaps overstate uh, the size and importance of the property industry to to New Zealand that's that's very much kind of how they've spun this but you know I'm, I'm not I wouldn't be surprised if that is is true yeah I, mean, I think we're just lucky that it's such a productive industry um, <laughs> so it really just keeps the money turning around um, keeping that money in the economy and not locking it up um, in, in rotting buildings for example um, and really treats um, its customers, you know, renters, uh, particularly well, because it's such a well-regulated industry now as well. Being the largest industry, the government has made sure to legislate um, appropriately to ensure that everyone involved is playing by the rules. Yeah, um, overall, yeah, no, no real issues. I mean, yeah, the, the, the trouble is for the wider economy. I mean, for instance, there was a uh, standard pause, or I guess now they're just S&P, they... they they went minimalist. Shit and piss. So many of us are going. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so S and P uh, last week, I think, had a report about New Zealand's property industry, which apparently is now the biggest industry in in New Zealand. Um, and they said that uh, there is a one in three chance that the housing sector or, or the real estate industry rather could see a massive correction. In, in prices over the next two years, I believe. Um, so, you know, I mean, if, if the property industry really is as integral and, and, and significant to the New Zealand economy uh, as, as this latest report seems to suggest it is, then that's not really that great news, that the sector that... that 80%. Acknowledge, uh, yeah, right. It, it's, it's going through this period of, way overinflated uh, prices and, and where value is really not being determined by anything real, but just by being determined by speculation. And if that is headed for some sort of massive crash, then we should be very worried. Uh, it's, not an, it's not a good egg. Or it's, not a, uh, it's not a good basket or it's not a good egg. It's Either both. way, both the basket and the egg are not in good condition. Let, let's let's just put it that way before I get lost in this, in this uh, metaphor. Eggs are crawling into the, the basket through the holes. They're so, <laughs> the eggs are so past their use by date. Um, they have small little tentacles 
uh, crawling out the bottom of them. They're crawling into the bottom of the basket through the holes and um, <laughs> causing all kinds of Lovecraftian issues uh, with oh, the entire God. the entire metaphor. Um, <laughs> I mean, but, like, that we could go on. We and, could, and, and we clearly we clearly should. Uh, I think as well, you know, this has been an issue since well before the 2020 election. Um, mm. We've had governments like attempting to run on capital gains tax. It has now like I think a 60% um, plus uh, rating among the public uh, are, are in favour of some kind of capital gains or, or wealth tax of a property nature. But Labour decided last year to, to throw it away um, to say that, oh, we ran a capital gains tax uh, previously um, and the electorate rejected it, which just wasn't the case. Um, it, it's a huge conflation of the way people vote um, and just seems to have been uh, an incredibly weak justification by Ardern's Labour and by Robertson in particular. Um, and then post the 2020 election, when house prices just took off, it was predicted that dropping money into the economy in, in the form of the umbrella payments was going to cause issues in the property industry. Um, and I think Bernard Hickey has done a whole range of of work on this as well to show like the ways in which treasury must forecast stuff, how it was really clear that some of these issues were going to occur. And the the government, and again, Robertson in particular, have said, oh, we could never have been able to guess and then refused to do anything for the last six months, uh, despite that happening. And despite the evidence now being available because it prices have gone up by an obscene amount, they're not building houses fast enough. Rental conditions continue to get worse. We have a a shortage of houses and a, a waiting list, the longest it's ever been, I think, for social housing, alongside some of the lowest unemployment we've ever had. So they can't devolve it back to some kind of bizarre argument around, um, around laziness or people not doing enough work, et cetera, anymore. Um, it, it's purely the, the fiscal settings. It's purely the way that they've decided to deal with this legislative issue which is essentially to ignore it um, mm. because they and and people involved um, in those decision-making processes either find it too hard, which is the charitable approach, that like I'm being charitable to, to even mouth that, or because they have, in, uh, they have interests in that industry themselves. Um, and we've had a couple of reports out just in the last couple of days about that. Mm. Just on Ardern's excuse-making about the, the capital gains tax very quickly, uh, there's a reason why people should not take this seriously. Uh, and, and one good reason is to look at John Key, uh, you know, arguably, until Justin Ardern, the most successful New Zealand politician of the last, you know, let's say, God, maybe maybe 40 years. Uh, let's, let's say that, 30, 40 years. Uh, Key famously uh, sold a bunch of uh, state-owned assets. Uh, this was a very unpopular idea. Polling showed that it was unpopular. Uh, uh, people protested in the streets. There were, there were big, big marches against it. Um, but he did it anyway because he won an election. There's a huge said, referendum, one of the yeah. probably biggest referendums that we've, we've right. had in the country. Yeah, but nonetheless, he won. And he said, well, you know, that's a mandate for, for uh, state, selling state owned assets, uh, even though it didn't make any sense given what we just outlined. But key understood the really basic fact of politics which is when you win you get to do what you want to do and he didn't even have uh, a majority no 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 well, yeah exactly no he didn't have a historic 
majority that, that Labour does now that, that let him do whatever he wanted, essentially. And and so this idea that, that Labour have to, to sort of kowtow to one, you know, fairly large, but but one section of the electorate and, oh, therefore, you know, I'm sorry, we, we can't do anything is not really true. And actually, you know, we can, we'll, we'll go into a little bit later on other issues. There are clearly things that Labour's doing that's very, un, un, <laughs> very unpopular that the electorate is not into. Uh, but they're doing it anyway. Um, but so, so that that's that. Secondly, uh, I think we're used to thinking of like New Zealand as a kind of like a like a like a uh, dairy sector with with a government attached to it. But it seems more and more as, as time goes on, more information comes out, and this housing, this 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 real estate market goes crazier and crazier. That we're sort of at the point now where we're a real estate market with a government attached to it. Uh, where, you know, and, and when I say attached, it's loosely, you know, the, the, the government, its job as seen by, certainly by national, which is totally fine, of course, to, to let these prices go up and, and, and you know, um, let investors do their thing. But also Labour have said explicitly, we don't see our job as, as basically lowering house prices. Our job is to just make them, grow a little bit smaller which they haven't uh, been able to do either to be clear no, no. but th- what that means is it's an admission that our role as a government is is to manage the uh the the continued growth of the real estate sector um just in a you know in a slightly in a way that's not as as unfair or um unseemly um but we are here to sit there and to let Real estate investments go up in value, uh, and so that eventually, you know, private investors, whether it's whether it's the mom and pop investors <laughs> that, that are often mythologized, or the you know the the big guys, either way, we're there for their interest, and that that's our only role. Not if they're not if they're um, foreigners though, so much, Branco. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and and so you know, this is a very big admission of that. And then I think the other thing that's that's key about that um, is that there was a story just this week. I don't know when this is going to come out. Maybe a few days before this comes out. That um, we we talked before about how New Zealand MPs are mostly homeowners, um, and not just homeowners. I mean, some of them have vast portfolios, state holdings. Yeah, that's right. They are. They're, you know, they're, they're uh, full-time real estate investors who do why is it not, uh, parliamentary like, work on the side. Why is it not counted as just insider trading at that point, honestly? Well, exactly. And so this piece, uh, it was it was on stuff. Uh, I want to give a shout out to the the, the reporter who was Charlie Mitchell. Uh, and and uh, basically it's about how MPs, real estate holdings, have gone up in value, the, the capital gains uh, over the last I think, year was $50 million, $50 million. So the people that are shaping the policy, the people that are basically saying our job is not to actually try and solve this crisis. It's basically just to manage it and make sure that it keeps, it keeps accelerating. Well, well, it keeps growing, if not accelerating. They are heavily, literally invested uh, in that very crisis. Uh, And they stand to make a lot of money um, from it. If, If at some point they ever sell their houses, and I would say, by the way, if if you're out there thinking about getting into real estate market, or uh, look at have a, have an eye on when MPs start selling their houses, like their investment properties, because that'll probably give you a pretty good idea of when it's time to get the hell out of the market. 
because there's no way they are not going to be quietly influenced by the information that they, you know, the briefings and, and other economic uh, information that they are getting that maybe we are not privy to. Yep, they are all cheats. And, and just to make like the individual numbers clearer, at, at 50 million over the course of the year, that's about a $450,000 bonus for the year um, on average. Um, and, and obviously some, some people hold more of that that than others. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's, mm, it's obscene. It's obscene. Uh, and for what? For already having property. Um, mm. And while being our decision makers in the property market. And I think that's the key thing because clearly there are going to be other property holders who are making a lot more than that. But to be privy to the decision making process, to have the opportunity to bring those prices down, but to have 400 and fifty thousand dollars of yearly gains on the line, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not even, I'm not going to say like politicians should be saints, but it's a, it's a far cry even from that. I mean, I think even if you believe that New Zealand's MPs are, are have hearts as pure as snow, that they are um, people who would, who would never use, you know, mix their political work with their, their private interests the private investments, that, that, that corruption in New Zealand is low, so on and so, so forth, that's fine. But even if you believe that, it, it would be unheard of just knowing how the human experiences, how human nature works, how the human brain works, that there is not some element of, of uh, their private interest in the back of their mind when they're making political decisions here, given the level of investment that some of these uh, people have in the real estate sector. I, I, the name I was coughing before was Christopher Luxon, who, according to this uh, piece, has a property portfolio worth $18 million. That's I more than I earn. <laughs> yeah, a little, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, it's a little more than, than a, a monthly Patreon uh, yeah. uh, contributions. But, I mean... He's the worst of them all, but but even if it's you know a, a fraction of that amount, that's still a lot of money that that you have invested in the sector. And I mean, if you don't want that to be a sunk investment, um, if you're on the on the line for potentially a lot of money, you're, you're the the idea that that is not acting subconsciously um, when when people are sitting in parliament and when they're deciding policy, when they're sitting in cabinet and deciding policy. Biggest belief. Mm-hmm. I, I very much doubt it. And, th- and if you really believe that, then you really shouldn't be, you know, for instance, you shouldn't have been outraged when you're reading stories in the US about, you know, Trump uh, owning hotels that like Saudi Arabia and, and various other uh, foreign dictatorships were, were like buying, uh, renting rooms in to, to sort of influence them. You should have been like, oh, well, no, I'm sure that's, com- that's I'm sure he's not even. No, no, it doesn't even consider that. track of that. Exactly. I think as well, one of the things we need to keep in mind is that this is generational. This is, you know, the the entire country of New Zealand is founded on this. People in the government take property, you know, from uh, the indigenous uh, Maori originally, um, and then they hoard it and they make it worth more and they pass it down to their family. Um, There's a whole system and structure already built. This is also a path of least resistance for them. Uh, alongside it being in their interest. Um, it is easier for them to do nothing, which, you know, even for some of the people we might say are more 
on the side of uh, you know non homeowning New Zealanders, they have, there's no there's nothing moving them. You know there's mm. a, there's a lot of inertia there as well. And and uh, you know as we were talking about before the show, if if you are looking at the New Zealand political landscape right now and you're saying wow, there, there seems to be a lot of kind of culture war stuff going on right now. There's, there's, and there's less discussion among politicians about... Uh, and multiple crises. About the, yeah, about the many just converging crises battling into each other. Um, yeah. And, and to us as a, as a country, but also as a, as a species uh, more generally. Well, you know, the, the, I think this is one reason why. Because, you know, nationals out there saying... Yeah, we want house prices to go up and up and up and up, and and uh, you know, mom and pop investors to do well. And what is the opposition party that that is currently in government going to say? Uh, well, we also want it to to go up and up and up. We just a, a little a little bit less, but yeah, uh, yeah, we we also want the same thing. So it's it's not exactly for for the substantial and growing number of New Zealanders who uh, don't own property and never will. Thirty percent um, are renters, uh, I believe. Yeah. Yeah, who are renters and, and probably will be for the conceivably for the rest of their lives, at least the way things are shaping up now. Th- there's really nothing for them. Uh, and, you know, I mean, if you pretend to be a party of kindness and, and, and ordinary people and, and workers and all this kind of thing, um, it's not exactly a good look if you're basically yep. just having the exact same uh, uh, policy uh, standpoint on, on maybe the maybe currently the biggest issue facing New Zealanders. Um, as the party of like of business and investors, so um, you know you, you go to the cultural stuff, the stuff that that you can show some differentiation around, even if it doesn't in the end really impact anyone's material uh, well-being. What's well, obscene as well, you know, um, there's there's some really clear crisis uh, convergences here. So you know, may, maybe not having a house um, and the housing crisis influenced the mental health crisis in New Zealand. I, I couldn't possibly be able to. Um, Make sense of that that particular one but maybe just maybe that that could be an issue uh but alongside that you've got this raising cost of living in new zealand um i've just seen uh, something pop up on my feed uh, from rnz news high log and beef prices push overall expert uh, exports to record six billion dollars um and we've had this you know very recent discussion around food prices here in new zealand um and these bizarre claims by um agriculture exporters that oh, well, someone overseas can pay more for it um, and therefore we have to set our New Zealand prices based on that, um, which is, one, a complete fabrication because we know and we can research ourselves and see that we charge far less for New Zealand products overseas so we can, can compete in their market compared to the New Zealand market. I think someone's saying a block of cheese is $20 at the moment, like a kilo. It's, it's outrageous. But we've got all these exporters who are just sending... You know, logs, they might be good for building fucking houses um, or, you know, like fixing up our infrastructure uh, and and beef. Hey, you know what? That could be sold here a, a lot better without the climate or food cost effects on, on New Zealand. And, and we don't we don't really get anything out of that. And we're not even talking about climate change at this point, uh, uh, really. You've got this multitude of, of different things converging. We have the floods down south, like across most of the country, people who have just been permanently unhoused they never been like a whole bunch of stuff got red zoned because they had another one in 100 year flood and Th- those seem to be happening a lot uh, yeah yeah a, a lot, lot more than once in every hundred yeah. years <laughs> yeah yeah no no it's it's one in the next hundred next century 
flood uh, and it just keeps rolling just over. Pu- right. They yeah. just push the flood a little bit. Yeah. And um, a government that's not responding directly to those uh, mm. challenges in a in a structural way that could actually solve those issues. Instead, it's maybe they'll slap uh, 300k at it. Well, you know, as we said, a government's role, um, as, as uh, envisioned by many of the, the New Zealand political establishment, is, is not to solve problems, it's to manage the problems that are just inevitable and that are impossible to yeah, solve. Yeah. There's, there's nothing actually the government can do. Um, you know what else? A housing crisis is, is, is not a, a good thing for having a massive um, uh, unhoused population that it's not a good thing for is uh, a pandemic. What? Um, yeah, yeah, crazy, right? Uh, and and uh, you know, I think that kind of brings us to our next topic, which is, I, I've been trying to envision what the future holds in in New Zealand. You know, I'm uh, looking at things in the US right now. This Delta variant, um, which is I think two hundred percent more contagious than the original coronavirus, and and, and more. Uh, deadly, more tends to be more um, serious for the people who do get it. It's uh, becoming the dominant virus in the United States. Um, it's a dominant virus worldwide. It's like eighty six percent or something. Right. Uh, it's it, exactly, and and it's it's. I mean, it's it's wreaked havoc in the UK. Um, it's in the middle of doing so in the US. I mean, here I think there was a, there was modeling that predicts that because uh, like forty. Four percent or so of, of Americans aren't vaccinated, um, and it, it may well be that by October, I think that the modeling said something like it could be anywhere from eight hundred deaths a day to four thousand. And yes. we we foreshadowed this prior to Biden's inauguration, right? Yeah. We said, um, and, and you said in particular, Bronco. Um, yeah, the rhetoric at the moment is going to be that this is um, not okay to to get past Trump. But we already know from you know previous behavior during the outset of the pandemic when they played chicken with Sanders over this, that mm. once the inauguration has occurred, they'll very quickly change what um, their messaging is around this. Um, and mm. it'll now be a, a very, I think within a month and a half, it became these deaths are inevitable. That's right. Or it's Trump's fault, um, which, of course, it is to some extent. Well, the, but, new, the, new, the new messaging is this is a... A pandemic of the unvaccinated, yeah. um, which, which which it is. But there are people also who are vaccinated. It's a very small number, granted, but there are there, there is a small number of people who are fully vaccinated and and have have either gone to hospital. And if you go mm-hmm. to hospital for COVID, I mean, you're you're pretty fucked. You, you're for, for the rest of your life. Um, that's going to affect you. It's going to do profound damage to your organs you know, your lungs and, and, and the like. But also there are people who have died. Um, again, a small number, but there is, it, it, it means that, you know, you're not necessarily fully protected with the vaccine. I mean, you're, you're most of the time. Yes, you are. But there is a small percentage and that of the people that will get really, really sick and you're rolling the dice. Yeah, and I, I think, think my main the, my main issue with that, yeah. that messaging as well is that it's once again devolving it to the individual. Like, Oh, these people haven't got vaccinated. And you know why they haven't got vaccinated? Because they were Trump supporters. Um, And kind of brings up this like, oh, liberals dunk on these guys. They didn't get vaccinated and they died, motherfuckers. Well, you know, and not, not, I mean, not just Trump supporters. I mean, unfortunately, uh, one of the highest vaccinated groups is African-Americans who quite understandably have a a lot of distrust 
towards the government. Almost like a systemic issue. Health. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I was thinking today about when um, when Obama went to uh, Flint, Michigan, the, the site of the horrible uh, lead in the water crisis that that, that was happening um, in the United States. And, and, you know, went there at the height of it, showed up, told everyone everything was fine, got a glass of water, and then pretended to, to drink it. Um, he pretended to sip from from the glass of water, and I mean, you know, that, that's the this is the, the first black president who who did this, who was lying to people um, and basically saying, yeah, you should drink this poison water. Um, and so, is it any wonder that 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 people have such distrust? But you know, for New Zealand, the implication is, I mean, I I do wonder what the future holds because, on the one hand, economically, um, I think there's only so unless you. Yeah, unless you uh, go to like a, a Cuba style <laughs> system, um, which we'll, we'll talk about a little, bit, a little bit later, but where the government is really taking charge of, of whole sectors of the economy to manage um, basically uh, austerity um, that, that is being uh, imposed by outside conditions. Short of that, and I don't think any, any, Political party in New Zealand has any appetite to do anything remotely like that. Um, uh, but unless you unless you have something like that, then then eventually you have to open the borders at some point. Otherwise, you know there are vast regions of New Zealand that that rely heavily on a steady flow of tourism. But you, we're um, going to cancel that take, Branco. We by no means have to open the borders ever again. Fortress, Fortress <laughs> New Zealand, that's what I say. Right. Well, but you know, good good luck to, even, to all those towns and, 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 and cities that, that are going to Yeah, especially die. not without an active government hand, right? Um, actually mm. working for some kind of just, just transition away from tourism. Um, yeah. And the other, the other thing is, even if, you know, a bunch of uh, people who support uh, closed borders at the moment, um, you know, even if you want that to continue, we've seen in places like Australia now, um, where you know they've had similar um, kind of success to us, you slowly, slowly, a- as the rich and powerful become vaccinated um, and see less risk for themselves, come under a lot more pressure mm-hmm. from you know anti-lockdown types, anti-vaxxers, which say who who they allow to run riot. To be clear, you've seen that just recently in the UK as well um, to create this media environment where. It, seems untenable not to change uh, the public health rules that have have got them through anything at all. And I'd like to think our our government might not do that, but we also know that, you know, they they have started to change their language uh, in some ways over the last six months. We're going to have to open up one time, uh, like sooner or later. Um, We just want to get to X number of vaccines. Um, You've got more people in the media starting to talk about that sort of thing. We're lucky we have a smaller population, so we're, we're unlikely to get, like, the huge turnouts. Um, and, and our media here, I think, has, you know, partly because it's non-Murdoch, has not been as outrageous as, as we've seen elsewhere uh, and, in support of these ideas. But, yeah, I don't, I don't think we should be confident that this Labour government will definitely continue with the best public health approach um, if the questions around the economy get strong enough, um, given that they have been unable to even solve or, or do anything at all about the housing crisis or, or the crisis for renters um, or, you know, 
build MIQ facilities. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the MIQ facilities is, is uh, I, I don't know if we if, if we discussed this in previous shows, but we have, uh, but let's do it again. But well, I mean, there was, there was a, the article that came out uh, a few weeks ago, I think at this point, mm-hmm. where someone did an OIA and they found that, that the government had been advised, I think last year, like middle of last year, that they should build their own private facilities, which of course is a no brainer. Why mm-hmm. on earth would you force people to spend money on five-star hotels if you can just build facilities yeah. that you can house them in free of charge or at least for a far, far lower price? Hey. And then eventually you can repurpose it for whatever. Anything. Whatever. Refugees. Yeah, social you know, housing, climate refugees, problems. A hospital. I don't, yeah, it could be. I don't give a shit. Yeah. And I all mean, the excuses given against us are, are so bizarre. Like, oh, we don't have the logistical capability. We don't have enough people. Yeah. But just take the people in the current ones and put them in the ones that we're currently running. Yeah. Um, okay, well, the hotel industry shuts down. I don't give a fuck. I'm curious. I want to get your thoughts on this. As, you know, you're still in New Zealand. You have your finger on the pulse of yeah, the right Kiwi home public. Do Eventually, it will have to come to a point where... Even even if the virus does not mutate and and keep killing people around the world, even if if there is some sort of semblance of control through through vaccination, widespread vaccination, um, there will come a point where the borders will open and the New Zealand public will have to accept some level of mm-hmm. risk there, in the sense of there may be people who come in who um, are unvaccinated, perhaps, and unless we put put together some sort of Vaccine passport regime. I don't know if that will happen, but even if that exists, it's happening in uh, Europe already. So I, I like it's likely to. But even if that exists, there are people who are going to game the system. Um, mm-hmm. There are people who will, you know, get through or slip through. Yep. There is a chance that that people come in. Also, there are people who, um, even if you are vaccinated, you can still carry the virus yep. and you can you can transmit it. And so there is going to be a certain level of risk uh, that New Zealand is about to face. And I'm curious if. Do you think the New Zealand public, um, at this stage anyway, because New Zealand has been in this bubble um, for for so long? And don't get me wrong, it's it's been great. I was back home for six months, and it was it was a, a wonderful time. Yeah, I very very much it was a, a breath of, of fresh air to say the least. But it is after after all this time of sort of being in this in this in this risk free zone. Will New Zealanders be able to transition to this other system where they they will have to live with a certain level of risk if they want things to quote unquote return back to normal? If they want to go travel without paying five thousand dollars every single time they 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 yeah. travel back and forth? I think this is certainly something that people accepted uh, more readily before we had a rolling wave of new. Um, you know, variants driven by the, the US and the UK in a lot of ways. Let's be clear about that. Um, and especially with Delta in the UK in a vaccinated population causing a continual COVID variance. It's just something that is going to happen. So we, we had a probably a, a disease that was easier to control previously. So some of that risk would have been easier to mitigate, essentially. I think there's going to be a core people who are just never going to be happy about it. Um, but it's going to depend on the comms from Ardern because a lot of the most fervent defenders um, of the government's choices, and I mean, you know, I, I'm a defender of the government's choices as well, but I'm talking about mm, people who yeah. will accept zero criticism 
um, and kind of going to bat for Ardern's um, comms, even when they're, and Hepkins' decisions, even when they're shit. Um, right, as in the people who are like, well, they couldn't do anything but. No, exactly. Five star exactly. hotels in the middle of the city. Yeah. So those, those are the kind of people that you'd expect to continue to pull that line. But if Ardern says otherwise, they'll just flip. So I don't think there's anyone really here that would have an issue with it if it came down from government at the moment, um, except maybe some, you know, public health experts. But uh, we're really easy. It's, it's really easy to kind of throw those aside once the government doesn't need them from a constant. They, they don't anymore. count. They don't get, well, yeah, once, <laughs> once they're convenient to, to the poker loans, it doesn't really matter what they say. Yeah. So, and, you know, there might be a, a, a hardcore of, maybe what you call public health leftists or something like that, who are like, oh, we're really going to get more under our feet here. But I would maybe consider myself in that group. And I don't see any way in which it's it would be justifiable after a certain point. I think it's more likely that we have less travel to and throw because of climate concerns, honestly. Yeah, um, yeah at some point I... I Maybe a best case scenario is that we move into a the COVID jab becomes a regular flu jab alongside the flu jab. You know, mm. um, we well, I, I was reading today, today, yesterday, yesterday in the New York Times that uh, the some of the data seems to show that the vaccine actually gets weaker after about four to six months. Um, so, for instance, in Israel, which had one of the earliest vaccination regimes, very early, very aggressive, uh, their vaccine efficacy rate, I believe, fell from something like 90%, which is, which is pretty standard, um, to about 39%. That's pretty not standard. No, no, which means sort of regular booster shots are, are, yeah. are critical. And uh, it would be good for yeah. that as if we had um, some kind of facility that we could repurpose so that people could like just get stuff done and then quarantine if they needed to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But, you know, I mean, I think that's another variable here that, that um, just kind of reminds us that we, we really have no idea how, I, I think everyone was very really hopeful, quite understandably. So, so was I, that yeah. once the vaccines came, everything goes back, goes back to normal and, and, and this whole nightmare that we just lived through. Yeah, I mean, the government certainly has. It hasn't, it hasn't changed anything, like, right. structurally. Yeah. Um, and I think that's going to be the major driver is that all these, there's a whole bunch of tourist companies that still exist. There are a whole bunch of, like, hospital stuff and, and like, in places like Queenstown that um, have maintained their business on some level in the hope that will open up one day. Uh, and there's been no work done by the government or those industries themselves to reposition themselves and say, oh, shit, I wonder what the next uh, pandemic is going to be. I maybe shouldn't be in this business or I should at least change what I'm doing in this business to make it more viable. And the major risk is that we we don't make that change. Um, that's That's where the real blame would lie, not with opening up once pressure gets too much. It's with the government for not deciding to make uh, a, some kind of just transition plan there um, or, or at least create a track through which people could do that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uncertainty, I think for, for uh, what exactly things are going to go like, which obviously is not, it's not good for businesses that sort of yeah, and that brings us to uncertainty. And yeah, well, the group maybe that, that most of all um, suffers from this uncertainty and we've covered this before on a show, but uh, I think it's worth talking about again a little bit. 
uh, are migrants, um, whether people who have been here a short while, immigrated just as the uh, pandemic hit, or people who were here for years before that who are still waiting to get residency, or people who, um, you know, who do have residency or, or maybe are even citizens, but happen to, as is the case in our globalized world, um, love someone from another country. Uh, no, another too bad. Too fucking bad. <laughs> right. Uh, and uh, this is a this is a thing that, that uh, I guess is, is, is I, I've been looking at for a very long time. Um, I've, I've talked to, I'll probably say at this point, dozens of, of uh, migrants and Kiwis with, with migrant um, partners over the last, God, at this point, over the last year. Uh, and they're heartbreaking stories. And I, to me, um, this is the an, an absolute scandal. Uh, yeah. The fact that it is not treated as a, a human rights abuse issue by this government that claims to that that brands itself with kindness that that goes around the world. Jacinda Ardern is, is beaming from magazine covers both here and abroad. Um, and the reality is that New, the New Zealand government, um, if you're a New Zealander listening to it, your money is paying for this, yep. is paying for the for, for essentially torture and traumatization of families, of children. It's paying for the separation of families. When, when I made this comparison, people got angry with me, um, the kind of people that, that you kind of previously <laughs> singled out, the people who kind of will defend this government no matter what they do. But people no, Do you want COVID to get into the country? Because that's what you're asking to happen. Right, it's right. their own choice. It's their own choice yeah, that they yeah. did this. And, and unless, of course, it's the Wiggles or it's the Lion King or it's a billionaire with a America's Cup team or it's the yeah, Western yeah. cricket team. No, but or... you know what? We have to try and like make some some things happen. Yeah. Well, uh, pe- people people got angry at me for, the, for this comparison. I, I have made the comparison that, that look, even if even if you say that this is not being done intentionally, that that's, families are being separated. And it is. It, well, yeah, let, let me let me deal with that point in a second. But even if you say that, that this is just an unfortunate outcome of New Zealand's border policies um, and that it's, it's, too, it's too bad it's happening accidentally, well, okay. But RMPs almost singular, you know, across the board, all said when, when Trump was forcibly intentionally separating families as, as a sort of punitive measure to discourage immigration, uh, undocumented immigration, that, uh, you know, families should stay together. They didn't say, well, if he did this accidentally, it would be fine. I don't, I don't think there was a single person in New Zealand who would have said, well, as long as Trump just accidentally, as a byproduct of this policy, uh, ended up separating families. Well, you know what? We would be okay with that. No, <laughs> the, 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 the simple principle is families should stay together. Uh, and, I, and I believe that wholeheartedly. And I think most Kiwis do. But the fact is for the past uh, nearly two years at this point, what, a year and a half, that has not what's been happening in, in Aotearoa. Uh, what has been happening is that people often with, with, a, with a right to come here, families of visa holders, uh, people who, who had been allowed to, who've been hired for jobs here, um, or, you know, with students who have been here for a number of years. I mean, a panoply of different circumstances, children, husbands, wives, 
they have not been allowed to come, even those that, that have had visas, even people who have been granted visas to come over, have not been allowed to come. Meanwhile, MIQ spaces, you know, have been, there have been dozens, if, if not much more, empty every single month, that if the government wanted to, they would have put them in. And listen, for the first, I mean, I remember talking to people, immigration uh, advisors and the like, and, and late 2020 and i asked them why is this happening uh why why is it the families are still separated nearly a year on and they said to me you know we, we don't know you know it, it seems like they just don't have a handle on this yada 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 by i would say a few months later by about you know march april may 2021 when i asked them this question they had all changed their minds and were saying, basically, we no longer think this is unintentional. We no longer think that this is just being done as an accidental byproduct because they know, you know, there was a November meeting with uh, Hamilton MP, Jamie Strange, where hundreds of families were there, people crying, uh, bearing their, their, their hearts, their, their telling their, their, their stories about being separated from the the partners and their kids, you know, not seeing their kids grow up, their, their kids, they've only known them through screens, their, their kids are traumatized, they have night terrors, they wet the bed, they, they're depressed, they suffer from anxiety. I mean, this is the kind of thing that New Zealand government is inflicting on people. And they knew about this in November, the amount of people who have, who have sent emails and letters to MPs, to the Prime Minister. I'm, I, there's a video you can find, Anu Kalotti, who, who uh, is head of the Migrant Workers Association. She was on the show earlier. You can find a video on their Facebook page where, in, I think in November 2020, uh, she tells Ardern face-to-face, personally, about the fact that there are migrant workers who cannot bring their families here. Uh, so it's, it, 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 at this point, we are, what, a year and four months on from that. Yeah, and nothing has changed, and and in fact things are, are seemingly getting worse. Yeah. Uh, and I I wish people got angrier about this. You say that nothing has changed, but in fact we have introduced a new um, migrant setting, a new immigration setting to let rich people in. Um, That's so right. yeah. I, I I don't know, Branko. Maybe um, you should give the government some credit where it's due. Um, <laughs> That's really but the, the other thing alongside that is well, there have yeah. been about three or four stories about it, right? And there's been a couple of MPs talking about it. Um, but it gets nowhere near the amount of coverage that some little piece of shit like um, big hospo motel owner gets when they're having a cry about their business having no tourists in it. it right. Like, which is story after story after story, to be clear. Um, yeah. And well, yeah, it's a far more compelling argument for why we should open the borders back up than than any other. Well, but the thing is, you don't have to deal with this by opening the border. You, the, no, and you don't even have to do that. No, no, it is easily done. You could you could set us. I mean, there are already MIQ spaces anyway that are free. But you could set aside. You could have set aside for for the the past year some number uh, every month, and you would say this is for families to be re- reunited. Yep. And we're going we're gonna to prioritize and we're going to say, okay, well, these people have been separated for the longest. Children first, or families with children first. Then we're going to do partners and so on and so forth. They haven't done that. And I mean... That's, a, point, that's the, a choice. 
Yes, it is a choice. It is a choice. After a year and four months, it is absolutely a thing that they're doing consciously. And, and you know, again, the, the people I've spoken to, immigration advisors and the like, all uniformly have, have said to me that the, they think what's happening is, look, the, the Labour government came into power in 2017 um, promising to, to, to cut immigration. Um, they didn't really do it, but they did actually, they actually did tighten uh, immigration in, in certain ways, but overall net migration didn't really uh, fall. But now they see this, they see this as, as a way that they can finally, you know, basically cut numbers, which, which the government has essentially said, they said they're going to do this big immigration overhaul. Um, Not in the way to, that you want it though. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. To, to make it actually harder to come in. To which I say, if you were, if you believed Winston Peters is a xenophobe and a dangerous demagogue, and I can completely understand that. And if you think Donald Trump is a uh, fascist or, or some his immigration policies, yeah, all every pejorative you can you can imagine for the things he's done, okay. But then hold this government to the to to anything remotely. Uh, uh, approaching the same standard as they as they slash immigrant numbers the, the and 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 not just slash immigrant numbers but do it in the most punitive um awful way possible it's the most inhumane thing you can possibly imagine i mean i you know i've talked to people whose marriages are broken up because of this uh I, the latest twist in in this saga remember the latest but one of the latest twists people remember in april the government because they were feeling pressure around this, there were a lot of news stories around this, around health workers being separated from their, their families. Around Yeah, when it was health workers, right? And you're just like, holy shit. Right, yeah. yeah, They're pretty important, um, yeah, traditionally. Uh, yeah, so, let alone in a pandemic. Yeah. But what do we know? What do we know? Yeah, exactly. So the government felt the need to seem like they were doing something to, to, to make, it, you know, make it seem like, hey, we're not just actually pretending that this isn't happening and we're not just letting it happen so that we can get people out of the country. Uh, what did they do? They announced in April that they were announcing three categories uh, of uh, migrants that they would allow to be reunited with their families. Um, one of which was the one that was probably the most controversial was uh, the third category, category three, which was um, highly skilled workers who, who not just being highly skilled, but also made double the median salary. So at least $105,000 a year, right? So obviously hugely problematic, the idea that, that someone's worth to this country, let alone the economy, is, is, is predicated on how much money they make uh, and if they have certain skills. Um, so, I mean, I, I spoke to a number of people um, a few weeks after that announcement was made, who um, who were highly skilled workers. Like, I mean, incredibly specific skills and qualifications that 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 employers. I talked to their employers that they they were unable to find anyone in New Zealand to meet these requirements. Yeah. These are people who already had like visa processes in place sometimes yes. as well, right? Yes, and and who had been already no, they'd already been given visas beforehand on the basis that they were these highly skilled workers. They made over the salary. They've been separated from their families for a year. What does the government do? It rejects them. Um, so even this narrow, you know, I, I don't want to use the word elite, but relatively, uh, you know, affluent and, and you might you might say privileged, let's say, 
uh, band of, of migrants, even they could not get their families in. And what's happened is they're, they're leaving. And I mean, there was, there's been a few pieces recently uh, kind of going into this even more where there, there's people who are maths teachers that are leaving. There's people who are in the health sector who are leaving. Again, all these highly skilled, very specifically skilled, high earning workers can't get their families in who are leaving. And I mean, even if you don't care about human rights and, and human beings, does that make any sense from an economic perspective to, to in these sectors that we are barely able to, to, to keep their heads above water? Yeah, especially with a, when we have a bubble with Australia, right? Right. Who, who yeah. pay better have and have better conditions and, and cost of living and yada, yada, yada anyway. Yeah. People, are, yeah, New Zealanders are leaving overseas because, because why the hell would you work in a overburdened, straining health healthcare sector for the meager, relatively meager pay that you get when you go overseas and make way more money and probably not want to uh, kill yourself, um, you know, and, and not uh, have the government, you know, threaten you with a pay freeze that you then have to, to, to sort of threaten a protest to, to prevent. So we're pushing those people out, you know, the education sector, the health sector, these, these vital parts of our society and economy. Aged care sector. Aged care sector. Yeah, we're saying, yep. no, no, we don't want you here. I mean, does that make sense to anyone? If, if you, if you, even if the only thing you think this government is doing right is they're they're managing the economy well or whatever, to me that is not good management. That is either incompetence or just plain idiotic decision making. It can be both. It can be both. Yeah, I, I think you know one of one of the other things we're seeing alongside this in terms of news stories is that you know there are these um, companies who have written scripts to like quickly snap up all the um, the MIQ spaces and charge people exorbitant amounts of money, and you know that's that's shitty and and oh, like an awful thing to do and a really terrible business idea, um, but it's it's a smokescreen really because the system doesn't have to be that way. Um, and there are no structural changes being made. Um, even when there was a reasonable amount of pressure around it, the government basically said, "Ah, oh, well, um, you know, that, that's just what happens. Um, so, so we have these multiple levels occurring, um, mm. and the, the actual human stories have essentially been completely lost. Mm. And, and, you know, I so said the latest development... Uh, previously, but this actually is the last development. Uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, the government uh, has announced that it is cancelling, I think, fifty thousand visa applications. Um, uh, basically, it's saying that you know we just can't we we can't deal with this, and so we are just going to uh, refund your money and and you know we'll, we'll be fair. We'll give you your money back, and then you can just sort of uh, you know we'll just and you and your prospects of moving here. Uh, which obviously is, is devastating for people who are partners of Kiwis because that means that they cannot be with their loved ones. Uh, and I mean, again, a lot of uncertainty here because economically, because if, if you are a worker here and your partner is not let in and, you know, it's been over a year now, there's no foreseeable point where, uh, you will see them again, then what the hell are you going to do? Are you going to stay in New Zealand or are you more likely to leave the country and, and try and be with them? Um, you know, assuming that your marriage uh, does not break up. Um, so, you know, I mean, again, another just punitive policy that that from a human rights standpoint is absolutely abominable, but, but from a standpoint of, you know, what's best for the New Zealand economy doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. I think that the government's assumption is that 
a lot of people are going to move back. A lot of New Zealanders are going to move back. So far, that has not been the case. Um, and often because surprise. the government's made it too hard to do so. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think, yeah, that, that a lot of people are kind of going, well, you know, let me see how the pandemic uh, pans out, you know, because maybe I want to keep my flat in London. Maybe I want to yeah. like the life I'm living in, you know, wherever in, in Berlin or, you know, Los Angeles, wherever you are, Toronto. And you go, well, you know, let's, let's see how this goes because I want to wait this out and, and be able to um, live my life as normal um, in this in this cool new place. So the this idea that there's this flood of returning Kiwis is not actually true. Um, I was actually uh, shocked to find this out, but but I learned this from um, uh, Shamabil Jakob, um, sort of a, a man about town uh, when it comes to the New Zealand economy, frequently quoted, but he pointed out to me that immigration numbers are, are not what the popular assumption is, um, which, you know, at the same time also makes you think, is there something that the government knows that we don't? Yeah, and, but this is a thing, is, right? Yeah. They, they may have a reasoning behind what they're doing with like really horrific shit they're putting people through, um, but they're not telling it, they're not communicating what that is. And so it just seems like some kind of horrible ideological decision. Yeah, yeah. And an ideological decision that, again, if this was another country and if it was a, you know, let's say an orange billionaire who was doing it, we would be absolutely outraged and appalled. Now, New Zealanders don't pay American taxes. So New Zealanders uh, have no real impact on what the US government does and doesn't do. Um, on the other hand, New Zealanders do pay taxes here in New Zealand. Um, they, they are represented, they vote in New Zealand, they have a direct control over, over and, and, you know, ultimately, unfortunately, complicity in what happens. And so we should be concerned, um, to say the least, about things that are happening in our name here in New Zealand. And yeah, I, I, you know, we, we could go on and on about this. I will say, if you want to maybe get an overview of this issue, uh, you can pick up an issue of North and South where I wrote this, this, this piece about this that kind of goes into some of the stories. Uh, which one? Which North and South? Which, which month? I think it was, it may actually not be on the newsstands anymore. It, it came out last, uh, middle of last month. So, um, but it was the July issue. So, so check it out. Um, and I would also ask you if, again, if you were angry at, at seeing some of the anti-immigrant stuff that was happening in Australia, in the US, in the UK, host of other countries, I would ask you to be as outraged that this nice, kind, liberal government is, is doing something similarly appalling here and to pester your MP, you know, send send emails, phone calls, you know, make the, let them know that there's a cost. This because the thing is, unfortunately, if migrants are the ones who are complaining, they don't care because migrants often cannot vote. And so they can feel free to ignore them because there's no cost. But if they hear that New Zealanders who can vote are not happy, maybe maybe there'll be some movement on this. I, yeah. I can only hope. And it has to be more than just like some shitty agricultural companies who want really cheap migrant labor, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it has to be. Yeah, Otherwise, to be that, that's what it will just end up being. It'll just end up being. Well, Interesting. I mean, one of the fascinating things about this is, is businesses are really pissed off about this, as you can imagine. I mean, you know, one, one employer I spoke to, uh, the, the guy ended up going home, you know, he, he's, he's finished. They were really annoyed because he, they could not find anyone out of many, many applicants who had this really specific specialized knowledge that he had. 
And, and what they were hoping was one, that they would expand their business um, and two, that they would, you know, so they would actually hire a Kiwi after that, who this guy would sort of mentor and train um, and, and therefore they wouldn't have to rely on front labor. And you would also get a Kiwi who was hired. They were going to actually hire someone else in another department of their business because they were going to expand who would also be a Kiwi. So, you know, this idea that, that, by kicking these people out of pushing them out that it's it's better because now kiwis have a have a have a more competitive edge to get jobs is not really true um and but businesses are really annoyed about this and it's very fascinating to me where the government um is is fine to draw the ire of businesses and and to defy them and where you know it will say well you know we can't do this thing because we don't want to uh, get the private sector to get well they have allowed more temporary migrant workers and haven't they for some of those agricultural industries, which kicked up a stink. Yeah, yeah, which is fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, bring people over here, exploit them for a little bit. Then, yeah, uh, nice, nice. Home. We love that shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway. Like, you, like you said, really interesting to see where they draw the line. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that brings us to our, our last thing, kind of a, a non secretor um, rather than a segue. Um, <laughs> but just wanted to head over to Cuba, um, which has been one of the many targets uh, that the United States has been trying to start a war with um, over the last uh, three or four months. Um, just a whole bunch of propaganda is out there, um, whether it's uh, anti-China stuff or some of that Russian stuff trying to start coming back up or uh, take your pick of places in South and, and Central America. Um, mm. But Cuba's the one they've been like, chipping away at a little bit more. Um, do you want to give us a quick rundown of, of what's been happening in that space, Bronco? Yeah, sure. So I, I think to begin with, let, let's acknowledge a basic reality, which is that uh, Cuba is an authoritarian dictatorship. It, it's, it's a, it's a one-party state, essentially. It's a country uh, controlled by a very small uh, elite. Um, there, there, aren't, you know, there isn't a free press. Civil liberties are not respected. Uh, there isn't really... Um, and democracy, at least in the sense that, that we think of it, these are all bad things. At the same time, uh, Cuba also has a really well-invested and thriving health and education sector. They're, they're, they're very high on the developmental index and have been for, for many years, despite uh, being a very poor and small country. To the extent that um, they were sending out doctors to help people with the pandemic. And they've got one of the mm. vaccines in circulation now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, the, this, these are the two things. Now, what would be lovely is if you had Cuba's, uh, you know, robust investment in, in, in sort of it's, its people's economic rights and, and security, as well as its, uh, as well as a commitment to their, their democratic rights and, and civil liberties and the like. That would be the, the ideal thing, a democratic Cuba, a democratic free Cuba that is also still maintains this kind of, um, you know, the, the, the socialist investment in, in, in the economy. Um, now, the Obama administration, you know, which is a very centrist, liberal administration, their point of view um, was that, that the way that you could bring about this fact, that you could bring about democratization and, and, and political liberalization in Cuba, it was not by, through sort of punitive, economic and, 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 you know, quasi kind of covert war against the country as had been waged for the previous, uh, well, hold on, where are we up to now? God, 40 60 years? years. Yeah, well, 60 no, years so, now, 60, right? 60, yeah, 60 years now. 
uh, yeah, so so at that point, I guess, so yeah, 50-something, 50, 50 low 50s. Um, their theory was that if we open up relations with Cuba, normalize relations, allow some travel, allow exchange, cultural and otherwise, and economic, between the United States and Cuba. And the United States, remember, is... is if, if there wasn't an, an embargo, which is really a blockade, but if, if there wasn't the embargo in place, it would be, the U.S. would be Cuba's largest and most important trading partner, which is why the embargo has been so devastating to its economy for, for decades. So the Obama administration, even it, it couldn't it remove the embargo without Congress, which is a non-starter, um, but it, it, it removed some barriers and started to normalize relations because it, it figured and I think quite correctly, the embargo has not worked. It, you know, Cuba has been a dictatorship for, for 60 years, despite all this stuff. So clearly that's not worked. So this, they thought, you know, this is a way that we can actually maybe bring about, help bring about some, some reforms and, and, and give people more freedom in Cuba. Trump administration came in and being Republicans and, and, and being staunch, uh, you know, anti-communists, um, decide that no, they will go back to the failed policies of those previous years, and they and they ramped up economic san- sanctions just as they did to other countries. You know, I mean, the U.S. right now, uh, Iran's another one which they're doing right. Uh, yeah, Iran, Venezuela, um, and Venezuela, the the sanctions on Venezuela have not only been devastating for Venezuela, uh, you know, killing. I think something like 40,000 extra people uh, a year um, by, by one estimate, but also it's meant that um, uh, it's had an effect on Cuba because Cuba, uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union and since um, Chavez you know, rose to power, has been very dependent on, on Venezuela for cheap oil imports and, and the like uh, and aid. Um, and so that has actually had a knock-on effect on Cuba. All of this is to say that, that at this point, um, a couple of weeks ago, uh, there were there were protests broke out um, in Cuba. Um, <laughs> broke out inverted commas. Well, no, I mean, look, people are people are suffering there, um, and it, it's hard to say totally without being you know, on the ground. But yeah. all the reporting, and this is you know, reporting from copious uh, 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 newspapers that are not in any way left wing or, or socialist or anything. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of universal thing that they, that they, the grievances that they mentioned are all economic things. It's, it's food shortages, it's high prices, it's medicine shortages, it's, it's COVID, which has res- had a resurgence on the island. And, and of course, people are also calling for, for political liberty, of, of course. Um, but, you know, the, the conditions of, of illiberalism that have, existed in Cuba have existed for, for decades. So you have to ask yourself why why would that break out now? And and the reason it has is because it can the economic conditions are so bad now that that people are people have had it. And look, of course the Cuban government has has mismanaged things in the economy, made mistakes in its economic management and and and, and all manner of other things. Of course. But all of this has to be understood in the context of its largest trading partner and really the the most powerful economic and, and, and military force in the entire world just off its shores waging a a economic war against a blockade as an act of war against the country um you know the the, the cuba was able to survive when the soviet union was able to fill the, the the gap that the united states left when the soviet union collapsed 
and and the U.S. actually then tightened the screws on these on this blockade. Um, we saw a similar thing happening uh, in the '90s. In 1994, there, there were huge protests as well because of this U.S. blockade. Um, and so, yes, has has are there are there obviously economic mistakes that are made within Cuba? Yes, absolutely. But the, I think the, the biggest proof that I can I can sort of cite to say that that the blockade is is the main thing that is really driving the suffering that's exacerbating these economic conditions that they're already, you know, the COVID has made even worse, of course, as it has all over the world, um, is the fact that this is exactly what US policymakers quite openly say is the point of these sanctions of the point of the embargo. You know, it was set up to, Heisenhower said, if the Cuban people are hungry, they will overthrow Castro. Uh, the Heritage Foundation, the, the, the right-wing think tank in the 90s, they celebrate, they were celebrating uh, the fact that they, you know, they did this report about here's what the embargo has done. There are women selling themselves into prostitution you know, to feed their families. Their families are subsisting on one small meal a day. Uh, people aren't able to get the medicines they need. And they were saying, this is good. This is good because they're going to get, uh, there's going to be unrest. And then the, the chances of, of, of throwing the government with a, with a violent or not is even higher. And they said, and by the way, we cannot open the borders to them. So if there are refugees coming in, we cannot open the border. We cannot give Castro the safety valve of letting refugees come in. We've got to keep them in there. We've got to keep that pot boiling until people get so fed up that, that violence erupts. But you said that those um kind of that change back to a, to a, a blockade-driven uh, diplomacy uh, happened under Trump, but it's not Trump anymore, is it? So and wasn't <laughs> Biden... Um, Obama's brother. So why isn't? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, yeah, ex exactly. Th this is one of the things that I um, tried to warn about uh, <laughs> before. Wrote a whole book about Democratic primary. Exactly. Yeah, which is one Biden is a is a, is a coward who yesterday's man by Branko Vashtich. <laughs> thank you, thank you for the plug. Uh, yeah, please uh, go into verse and buy it if uh, if you if you want to know everything that you're seeing already. Um, you know, yeah, Biden is someone who folds immediately under, under any pressure from the right. Um, he, he has no capability to stand up to, to, to right-wing attacks. And, and so they took a stance very early on. And this is really very much the, the, the case with a lot of Biden's foreign policy. It's not that different from Trump's. Um, it, has, it has in some key ways, but, but, you know, on Iran and a whole host of other things, it's pretty much identical. Um, they said, you know, well, we're not, we're not going to do anything with Cuba. We're just, we're just going to leave it as it is. It's not a priority. Um, and uh, I, I honestly don't think that the Biden administration is actually committed to like, overthrowing the Cuban government. I, I really don't because it's, it's a completely pointless thing to do. And it would just mean a massive refugee crisis on their shores. Then they're already dealing with, with immigration, um, with, with, you know, they have a full plan on immigration. So I, I don't think that they would they actually care about this, but they, for the sake of appearances, uh, for the sake of like avoiding being attacked and having their kind of domestic policy unravel, uh, are doing Because there are a bunch of um, hawks just running around looking for an enemy. Um, well, you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, look, I don't think they care particularly. I mean, I think they, they don't care who it is. You know, but, but I don't think that they're like, yeah, this is a, a, a top priority of ours. Like, I think it's just kind of like, well, whatever, we'll, you know, they'll survive and, we can maybe get to this later if we if we get to it. Um, but uh, what's funny to me is that that this is a very good case of, of, of poor statesmanship. It's the the idea that we'll just kick the can in the road, and so we don't have to deal with this now. Because if we 
if we went back to Obama era policy, we'd get attacked. So we won't do that. Well, guess what? Now protests are erupting and they're getting attacked anyway, because now the, the, the right is kind of pushing for outright regime regime change in yeah. Cuba. And, and then you've got and, some members of the, the left, not not actually in, in Congress or anywhere, really. Um, I think we're a couple. But then you had you had a, um, like, supporters of Cuba bought, like, a massive ad in Times Square <laughs> and, and shit like that. You Like, so many people have come out in support of Cuba. And, yeah. So, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a terrible situation. I mean, the, the idea that the U.S. is not intervening right now is ridiculous because, of course, the, the embargo is a is a is a, <laughs> a pretty big intervention. I mean, you know, I would ask New Zealanders to imagine what would happen if, if say, like China uh, suddenly decided to just close out New Zealand entirely economically. I probably um, find the best, mate. <laughs> I've been listening to Anne Marie Brady, and that's what she says was. <laughs> Well, I mean, no, of course, it would be devastating for our economy. Who's going to buy all our you know, milk powder and, and all that? I mean, I solids, yeah. Yeah, I mean, imagine. So, uh, I mean, and that's like, that's not even that that good an example because the, I would say the US is, is a much more important trading partner to uh, Cuba than China is to New Zealand because New Zealand could at least maybe go, you know, Australia and, and the UK. But, but yeah. Um, so, and, and the other thing I think to note about this is that the embargo is opposed by the entire world. I mean, it's, it's the, the U.S. is very isolated in its insistence on keeping this this policy in place. Uh, we had, you know, just a week ago, I think it was it was the Mexican president, Amor, said, you know, in response to the protests, well, the embargo should be lifted. Uh, Brazilian president to be, hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, Lula um, said the embargo should be lifted in response to the protests. A few weeks before the protests broke out, uh, uh, the UN voted for the 29th year consecutively to condemn the US embargo. Um, and so it was, I think, 184 countries to two. The only two countries that were standing mm, I wonder what they could state. be. Take a guess, <laughs> listeners. Take a guess now, and then Branko will tell you who they were. Take a guess. We'll just give yeah. a quick... Okay, Three, you've guessed. Two, one, drum roll... The United States and Israel. You probably got it right. Congratulations. Uh, Share this with a friend. (laughs) As your guest. Yeah. So this is is a very uncontroversial opinion, unless you are on the extreme right wing, which is basically known as the mainstream right in the United States. Um, But it's in the rest of the world, it's, it's a completely uncontroversial thing. I mean, of course, by the way, businesses, if you're a pro business person, if you're a, if you're like a you know somewhat like a national voter who, who thinks business is good, well, guess what? Businesses suffer from the embargo too because uh, I think something like six billion dollars a year it was estimated that 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 farmers, U.S. farmers and businesses lose every year from the embargo. I mean, there's also a lot of um, a lot of businesses would love to invest in Cuba and, and expand there, but but they can't because even with the embargo, even if conditions change from Trump. And, and whatever Republican takes power next time, the fear is that, well, they will just put put these sanctions back on and, and make things difficult. So overall, there is no reason uh, to keep this, this really vile policy in place. For what New Zealanders can do, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I don't know. But uh, if you're interested to find out how you can help, um, there is a meeting 
being held um, at 5.30 p.m. Thursday, July 29th. Hopefully this episode comes out. I'm going to make sure it is. But before then, uh, it's at the First Union offices um, at 120 Church Street, Manuhunga. So it's 5.30 p.m. Thursday, July 29th, um, First Union. Um, and there's a public meeting to discuss the economic situation in Cuba and, and, and everything that's been going on and, and hopefully offer some proactive solutions for what Kiwis can do to, to you know, uh, get, get through this terrible thing. I mean, it, uh, one more thing I'll just say. I mean, for example, the COVID situation there is really better now. Not, not as bad as the United States, <laughs> even close to what it was at, at its worst, but, but it's pretty bad. But Cuba has a vaccine. They, they have a vaccine. They developed one, which is incredibly impressive for a country that is poor and has been um, basically trampled on by, by massive imperial power, um, just next to it, but they can't administer the vaccine because they can't get syringes because of the blockade. Wow, that's horrific. Uh, yes, uh, and so I hope you know maybe this meeting. I don't know what's what the content is, but I hope maybe one of the solutions is, is how to get aid like this into Cuba to actually help them get through this crisis. And then hopefully, you know, if if they ever get back to some sort of normalcy economically speaking. We can we can see a Cuba that is politically free as well as uh, economically secure. That would be that would be nice. Great. Hey, good mix of um, New Zealand international stuff there this evening for our listeners. If you have enjoyed this, oh, do you have any final thoughts in general, Branko, before we slice this one up? <laughs> no, I, I think I'm out. I'm done. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, if you've enjoyed this, uh, give us a share. Um, check us all over Twitter, all over Facebook, all over Instagram, wherever you want. Um, if you tag at one of 200 um, podcast, uh, we'll even put a favorite on it. Um, <laughs> you can find our articles and other stuff at one of 200.nz. Um, and there's also a link to our Patreon there. Uh, we're trying to expand at the moment. So any um, couple of dollars you can give us per month is fantastic. Um, we want to do a whole bunch more in the independent left media space. And we really need resource and contributors to do that. Um, as you all know, uh, it's it's not easy to do independent media here in New Zealand, so every little bit counts. And I want to give a big thanks to everyone who's been supporting us uh, over the last uh, two and a half to three years. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation you hate nationalism